My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Today I'm with Shore Match Angling Specialist Mick McCallum from Blackpool, who as an England team member has won medals at both world and home international level, including home international gold, which having watched him in action while working together on a series of articles for Total Sea Fishing magazine some years ago, I can quite easily understand. A good place to start might be to tell us how and why you became a part of the England international team set up. The reason for starting to want to fish for England and become part of the team was I was so much into the angling in a big way. Started off small, you know, wanted to get in the top ten in competitions and just kept chasing a goal and then obviously certain things turned up as in got into bigger teams that had a bit of presence around the country and then decided that Home International and the SAMF Match Angling Association, which I got regularly selected to fish for them, and decided to go for the the England International stuff, which was a real big motivation and a goal, and something that I wanted to prove that you know there wasn't many anglers from the north of the country that actually achieved getting into the team or even managed to stay within the team. You know, I've got a couple of friends around the northeast that had actually been in but then didn't pursue it any longer, but really didn't say to me, because I'd, I'd spoken to her on a number of occasions saying, you know, what was it like? And to be fair, I think they weren't really open to say that it was a bit of a letdown. You know, it wasn't all what it was made up to be. And I think, obviously, they've got families, and as an individual, you still have to make some contribution because it's not all paid for. So, yeah, I chased the dream. Don't really regret it didn't really get the achievement that I wanted out of it in the end. I did actually manage to get into the world team uh, only as a reserve. Went out to Portugal, had a, a fantastic time. Nine days of practising, going on the beaches there, finding out different species where the fish were feeding, and had a fantastic time. Felt a bit of an outcast in some part of the time spent out there with the team, simply because I was out there as a reserve and when I was out on the beach practicing with the other anglers, I was holding my own corner, and probably a bit more than that. I always had in the back of my head, hoping that something, you know, might have inspired manager or other team members to say, look, you know, this guy's pretty strong and he's pretty good all round it, and he was catching more fish than a lot of the guys that were out there practicing alongside me. I kept waking up in the morning thinking tomorrow they're going to say, Mick will slide him one of the days. Unfortunately, that didn't happen because the manager was actually looking after the ladies' team as well. So, as the days got shorter towards the competition, that became quite open that I was going to do a lot of the running up and down the beaches and feeding the information to the other five members of the team. As it happened, I did do that on the five days that we were out there for the competition and I sort of managed the shore team well. David Rowe, the manager of the England team, was actually looking after the ladies' team. It was um, a good result at the end because obviously it was the first medal they'd ever won in the Mediterranean. So, yeah, we were on a high. It was the bronze medal, but it was a medal, and we learnt a lot of uh, different ways to fish because obviously we, we all know that we just use big, heavy beach casters with not too heavy line, but at the end of the day, the rods were probably a little bit overpowered for the type of fish that we were catching. I'm a big believer with a lot of the rods that we used. Unfortunately, 
people like Neil McKello, who's built like a barn door, a nice guy with it, has got the power and the performance to bend some of these heavy beach casters that people tend to use that when you get home you've got horrific backache because the rod's too stiff for the job that you're trying to do. And going on to that, it's a bit like having a bone arrow. If you can't pull the string back, then the arrow's not going to go very far. So if you can't compress the rod, then A, your casting isn't going to go so far. But the Italians and the Portuguese and a lot of the other guys were, you know, it was a good thing to do running the bank at the time because I did learn a lot of things that maybe some of the other guys didn't actually see where they were using softer rods and fixed spill reels, braided line, small diameter line, which you couldn't cast from a multiplayer. So, yeah, it was a lot learnt from the whole experience going out there. Enjoyed the time. Again, reservations of what part of the team I was at times. But as I got home, great results. Happy days. Initially wasn't happy to go out there as a reserve, but was promised at some point that... If I did go out to Portugal and do the bank running and, you know, obviously a lot of the hard work that needed to do be done while we was out there, that I would get a place in the team for the following year, which would be in Italy. But that didn't come to fruition. Got a phone call when I got home, got letters from the sports council saying thanks for all your efforts and well done. But again, I didn't get the opportunity to go back out because I got a phone call to say, get your head down and, you know, you need some results for this year. The results, in my opinion, would have come anyway because I was such a dedicated angler and I put so much work into it. A lot of the work isn't always on the beach and isn't always about the fish being there. got to obviously do a lot of work on getting baits ready and rigs and all your equipment ready. It's no good going on the beach with it still messed up from the last time you fished. So, yeah, very disappointed outcome at the end because I didn't get the opportunity to go back to Portugal from Portugal should I say to Italy because again I've got sort of views on if you're an angler or you're a selector on the committee in my opinion it should be a, you're one or the other not part of both I do believe that the committee should have some sort of angler involved in making suggestions and helping guide them but not actually be part of both and that clearly is a problem that I find for you know, a lot of guys that really want to get into the international teams. Again, the same person that I'm speaking to, I'm not afraid to say his name, I might as well keep quite clear that the name is Chris Clark. Good angler, OK, he's been there a long, long, long time, but he's a close shot. Come clear to me that the North East lads didn't knock on the door and have another go at it because the door wouldn't open. So... My opinion was, and a lot of opinion for a lot of people throughout the country, it's South Coast based and unless you're down there and you're in the mix of things on a day to day, then it's pretty difficult task to get back into that sort of team thing with them guys. I went to Bridlington to fish home international. While I was at Bridlington, we won the gold medal and it was at that point where I really aired my views with David Rowe and Chris Clark because I felt like someone needs to say something to him. Unfortunately, I think I wasn't approved because I'm, I wasn't a yes man. I really wanted to voice my opinion. I've got a very, very good friend who fishes on the other coast, on the east coast, a guy called George Smith, one of the probably top anglers in the country. 
and again knocked on the door many, many times, but the door never opened for him. Put this down to the fact that one of the things that they said was he was a diabetic and he was a risk that should he have a problem while he's on, his, on the beach, then it would be a problem to the team. And again, that just proves that, to me, that the managers of the teams don't really look after the, the team's members. It, they say they're a team, but they're more of an individual, and hopefully it'll all come together. George Smith, again, cracking angler. He's a diabetic. All he needed to do was make sure he had a couple of Mars bars in his tackle box and made sure he, you know, he hadn't had too much beer the night before. That's what a manager does. And in my opinion, they need to work a bit harder with the people that they've got in the team as opposed to just the way they run it. Very, very close shot. Great experience. Would I do it again? No. I don't think that what I've said, it, there's anything wrong there. I think there's a lot of anglers that think it, probably seen it, but won't voice their opinion. That's not me. So how exactly does the selection process work? You have to get... It used to be a minimum of 35 results throughout the year, which is very, very difficult, as in if you haven't got the time. One thing that I did have was I had a very good understanding wife and I had a daughter that was still playing with, with the dolls, so it gave me a lot of time. Although I did have my own business, all the spare time I had was uh, spent planning different competitions and having to travel throughout the country to get results because you're not looked upon that you're doing very well if you're just picking up the results from your, you know, your own coastline. So there was a lot of travelling involved, but I've done that in the past 10 years. I've been doing the match circuit, travelling all over the country to fish different venues and learnt a lot about the venues and where the fish were, the baits that were required to do that. So, yeah, you needed to put in your CV, which you put in every year, and that was posted off to the selecting committee, and you sat with your fingers and your toes crossed, hoping it would come back that you were going to get selected. The first time I put in, I did get selected for the Home International and fished the Home International probably three times before I approached to double up and put in for the World and the Home International, of which, again, I got selected for the Home International, and I also got selected as a reserve for the World Team. And for how long did you stay with the squad? I've stayed with the team over, probably over five years, um, but obviously it was just a sour, sour ending, getting promised things that they didn't really deliver. Looking back on the whole experience now, what are the potential advantages and disadvantages of being an England team squad member? The advantages were really for my own benefit, I'd worked very, very hard. It was a dream. The dream came true because I did actually get there. I lost a lot of friends along the way because obviously people just sort of turned their back on you and thought you were, you know, always thinking you were better than they were. It was a great experience. Walking through the town centres with your blazer on and getting there where, where they're playing the national anthem and being part of that was just phenomenal. It, you know, it really takes your breath away sometimes. Obviously, we stood up on the podium and we got the bronze medal when we was in Portugal. 13 nations, fantastic. All right, I'd love to go back there, but that's not going to happen. The home international, bit more down key, really, but still a great thing to achieve. But, again, lost a lot of friends. Used to turn up to competitions and statements were made to you. I'm not bothered about winning the match as long as I beat you. Uh, <laughs> 
lots of little indiendos that came from all over the place really so yeah great experience that's all i can say about it really but you know the end wasn't what i really was looking for it wasn't what can i say it just ended very very sour as has been the experience of virtually everyone I've spoken to who's spent time with the various England camps and since left. In the end, the parting of the ways has often been less than amicable and usually driven by internal politics. Was that also the case with you? Yeah, the politics is very, very... Un- Again, you don't really get into it. I mean, don't get me wrong, we're all friendly, but there's got to be a, a draw a line where the selecting committees and... You know, the anglers are part of a team and I just do believe that they've got people on the selecting committee that probably haven't put as much time into angling as the anglers themselves. So, again, a different type of selecting system would probably be better. I believe in qualifying rounds, you know, you fish for... You do different competitions and you'll always find the better people will always shine at the end because they're the guys that get the results, they're the guys that do the preparation just because you live on the south coast and that's, I'm sorry but if you look through the previous records of all the anglers that have ever fished there's probably an handful of northern people that have ever done it I mean, I'm talking from when I finished so maybe not up to date because I really don't follow it anymore and I don't believe that the guys that are out there really getting a fair crack at the whip you know they should maybe start off with having regional competitions and then narrow it down to the last five or six anglers and have it off as a fish off and they're the guys that will produce the fish there is a, a side of it where the selecting committee have to say is this individual acceptable or is he his presentation the way he puts himself about is he suitable to be in an england team there are areas that you need to be looked at as an individual person other than you, just your skills because obviously you know you don't want to be sending someone out there that's an aggressive sort of guy that's going to end up rolling around with somebody else on the beach or in the pub or anywhere else. So there are areas where an individual has to, you know, you look at look at him as a person as well. But let's get it right. At the end of the day, you're going on the beach to fish, to catch fish, to do the best for your team and the selecting committee is a closed shop and the, the thing is year on year the same people are still in that team got a guy there that's selecting committee he had an accident in his, his own business badly damaged an arm but yet he's still fishing for England he's a disabled man I don't wish any accidents on anybody but that guy is now gone from a, he's, a, he's a selecting committee, he's in the team and He's disabled. Now, he should go and fish for the disabled team because at the end of the day, that's what he is. And the guy causes more trouble throughout the team because he's been there so long and it's just not done. It's just not right. I've already put this next question to world course fishing individual gold medalist Ian Heaps, though I phrased it the opposite way around in his case because northern anglers tend to dominate the course fishing scene, whereas on the beach, that dominance appears to come from the south coast. I asked him why he thought northern anglers were so good. His reply was basically that because fishing is so much harder in the north, when someone able to churn out good results under tough conditions head south to where the fishing is so much easier, they usually can't help but get a good result. Are there any parallels there with the shore fishing scene? 
Yeah, most definitely. I mean, let's be right about it. You know, you go down south and there are different beaches to what we've got in the north. And the deeper beaches, you know, let's pick Chesil Beach. Chesil Beach was a, a prime example for me. I got selected to fish for Sam for qualify against Belgium. And I went down there and I was met by the same guy, Chris Clark, in the reception of the hotel, who wasn't a part of the team, but was just doing some observation on the day. And I, I got the draw and I met a lot of southern lads that were down there and obviously I think, don't quote me for the numbers but I'm sure there was probably about 10 people in the team it may have been a, maybe a little bit more and basically Chris had said to me Hi Mick, oh you've got your work cut out mate I hope you can catch lots of dogfish so I said well I'll catch what's on the beach Chris I actually drew the peg next obviously it was every other man would be a Belgian guy the nearest angler to me on the right was Alan Yates now, I've got a lot of respect for Alan, good angler, been around a long, long time, and gone down to the beach, assessed the beach, looked at it and thought, doesn't look like a dog venue tonight, today, should I say, because it was in the daytime, bit of a lump on the sea. Obviously, Chesil Beach, quite a deep, shingly beach, or should I say pebbly beach, and we set off catching small pollock and a couple of flatfish, as the day progressed, I ended up with 82 fish. Not one was dogfish. Starry smoothhounds, codlins, you name it. When I arrived at that hotel, I looked round and everybody's going, who's he, who's he, who's he? And almost like I sat on my own. The only other northern person that turned up there was a guy called Andy Steele, quite involved now heavily with the England team, coaching or running junior team. We were the only two northerns and we were, again... It was like sitting on the other side of the room, or it was like going to a party when you don't know the rest of the family and the click, you know, you get your click. But as I come back after the, the first night, it was suddenly, hang on, we need to talk to him. What was he doing? He had 80-odd fish. Probably the nearest to me was maybe 30 or 40 fish, but it wasn't, I doubled anybody else's fish. So, yeah, going back to what you just said, Phil, people do say that there are big opportunities, there are more fish, but you can only catch what's in front of you. I mean, I'm really big into the freshwater stuff. I've I've always done it for years and years. And I used to do that because I couldn't do it on the beach. So basically, I used to go to local waters, fish with my pole or my tip rod, just so I could catch fish and get faster and faster and faster. Because, yeah, we come on our beaches and maybe I want to catch a few flatties and six or seven whiting or maybe and a few codling thrown in. There ain't great numbers of fish, but there are other ways of actually practising to catch fish. Fishing's still presentation, still about putting the right bait on, keeping the fish interesting, obviously in fresh water. You can't do that in the sea because they're swimming through, but when they are coming through, how many can you get out while they're there? That's the thing, and that's where I used to practise because I couldn't catch the numbers of fish off my own beach because they weren't always there, and the conditions are not always right. So days where I couldn't go on the beach... That's when I would go and sit on the bank and I'm a carp, roach, whatever swims, I would catch. That's what I wanted to do, catch, catch, catch. So, yeah, there's some guys I've got an upper hand in some ways because they have got the fish there on the beach in bigger numbers, but that shouldn't stop you because you live in the north. That's just not right. Can we turn our attention now to the fishing itself? Let me start by asking what you would be looking for on a piece of shore that was previously unknown to you in order to give yourself the chance of the best result. If I was going to a competition, Phil, it wasn't a beach I'd ever fished before. A, I'd 
try and find as much knowledge as I possibly can. But I always, always be early to the competition. You know, I want to be there before. Let's go back to Chesil, just as Chesil's, you're not going to see what's under there. So basically, tide just comes up and goes down. It doesn't really uncover. The beaches that I fish locally, you know, the tidal, the shallow, um, and you get the chance to read the beach. So wherever I was travelling to, I'd always be there in good time before the match started so I could see what was in front of me. I mean, you know, OK, if the beach goes back five, six, seven hundred yards, my capabilities are probably 180 yards, and that's as far as I need to see because beyond that I'm not going to be there. But I need to, it was important to see if I had any gullies, any rocks, any groins, anything that looked like a fish might come along to have a look for food. I mean, you know, big believer in people used to say gullies are where the fish are, but sandbanks are also where fish are. People don't think that catch fish on sandbanks, but the sand on the sandbank is softer. If there's food in there, it's getting stirred up. The fish are having a look. So, yeah, it's very, very important that you read the beach. And if you get the opportunity to go and pre-fish the match and fish it, and hopefully you're, never, you're not going to guarantee the conditions are going to be the same on the day, but it does give you some indication of what's happening. Speak to local people, go to the tackle shop, go in and just have a mooch around and ask how they're fishing magazines the internet there's thousands of ways now that you know other than actually turning up to the venue to find the information but it is it's most important that if you're gonna you want to succeed and do it big time then you've got to put the homework in you've got to put the work in i remember when i first started i used to thrive to try and get in the top 20 then i'd narrow it to 10 and i wanted to be in the top three and that's how i set off you know i didn't put my expectations up too much when i first started because that's how it is. You've got to work at it and you've got to see who the good anglers are, have a route round, go for a walk. Turn up to a venue if you're not fishing it, if you can. Go and have a look, walk, walk round and have a look at what the guys are doing, how they're fishing. Get talking to people and hopefully get yourself into a, a team what's got good, dedicated anglers. I mean, I fished with some great guys, but unfortunately when they went to the venues, like we always used to, the Sea League finals were the perfect thing. I mean, OK, in the heyday when I was doing it, maximum of 27 teams teams of five i mean now we're lucky if we can get five teams in the whole league and in fact i don't even know if the league still exists but they were the great things because we traveled away but unfortunately the guys used to think more of beer than the competition and it'd be great to win the competition and then spend the money on beer if that's what they wanted to do but it was always we were knocking on the door we got there but it gave me the opportunity to see other anglers that were good anglers, you read about them in the Angling Times or you read about them in Sea Angler or go and fish your next one, go and learn something. You might get a good hiding, get beat, but make sure you keep your eyes open and learn. It's the only way to do it. Looking a little more closely now at the types of features you could typically expect to see beyond the high water marks such as gullies, banks and groins, could you now take us through each in turn, explaining why they're so important and what species you would expect them to attract? Um, if you go back to your gullies, I mean, your gullies are going to be anything that's swimming in the sea, to be fair, or follow the tide, because obviously that's where the current is running down the gullies. All the fish tend to follow each other in that sort of pattern. So gullies are important, yeah. You don't want to be at the end of the gully if the tide's running left to right. You want to be at the opening of the gully in, the, in, the, in reverse, possibly the other way. But obviously if you're at a peg match, then you've got to put up with what you've got. So gullies are important. Mussel beds are important. The you know fish are feeding on mussel or fish on the mussel. Gullies and sandbanks are my favourite. It's definitely definitely important. Groins, yeah, get down the side of the groins. 
little rockling, anything that swims up a groin, they're going to have a look, see what's grubbing around, because obviously if there's crab there, crab will disappear. They like to pull themselves up tight and bury themselves. So fish know where they're looking for food at all times, and anything that's been pulled off the banks will get pushed up against the groins and get trapped. That's the way fish are coming there for easy pickings. So, yeah, you need features on the beach. Flatties will swim up anything. Basically, they'll... You know, you can catch flatfish on mud banks anywhere. They just follow the tide back open to pick up anything that comes up once the tide's covered the beach or the mud. They're looking for the maddies or anything that they can find. And when you're fishing on the steeper beaches where the tidal pullback is less pronounced, or even towards high water, do you ever watch for wave patterns to try to pick out the positions of particular features responsible for disturbing them? Yeah, yeah, it's a thing to look for, flat water, rolling water. If it's a shallower beach, then you'll tend to find that where the gullies are then the, it's going to be flat and where the banks are you'll find that that's where it's rolling in shallow on the banks where the where waves are breaking so yeah it is important and if you're fishing the deeper water so I've got, I go back to chisel chisel and even off any walls when you get close to it it's almost like a tumble dryer so basically it's not a good area always for fish depending because the waves hit the wall or the shingle and then they turn inside themselves so you've got to be careful when you're catching fish and you're bringing fish up there because you don't want to be bringing it up when the wave's going over itself and back under because it will pull fish off if they're, you know, if they're only sort of hooked in the lip or they're not hooked properly. And also, it does pull fish off. Now, Chesil Beach is a perfect example. You had to come in with your fish on the rise of the wave, not on the turn of the wave going back because, again, you'd lose fish. So, yeah, that, that is important. Um, obviously if there's not a great roll on the water and it's flat then yeah get under the wall get at the bottom of the bank you will catch fish because the fish will come in that close but to say if there's a big swell on the tide then no don't go there if you're on the beach at low water where the tide does pull well back will you be noting the positions of these features along with the stages of the tide when they will either come in or out of reach to maximize the potential of what's on offer yeah that's right well you need to read the beach and and fish those features fish those features that you've seen I used to get on the beach early always had a couple of rods set up obviously back up in case you blow a reel or something else but and many a time I'd be marking lines Tipex is a perfect example cast out, pull it back, mark the line when the tides come in that what you've seen as a feature you know you can't clearly see anymore because the sea's there and you just don't know it where exactly it is so you know look for things to line yourself up with and mark your lines. Some people use power gum to mark the line so that they actually know that once the tides come in that is exactly where they want to fish to. Features are, are so important. Chucking chance, then yeah you're going to catch fish but you've got much better chance of catching the fish on the features. What are your thoughts then on perhaps using a little handheld GPS? Yeah, a very very good bit of equipment now. Personally never had that opportunity because they weren't that freely available but yeah, fantastic bit of kit I mean obviously the boat guys use it beach fishing it depends how much you want to spend for but you can make it quite easier by just being there a little bit earlier and doing your own work really looking at things now through the eyes of a pleasure fisherman who can turn up at any time he or she wants and is not limited to where they can fish unless of course someone else has beaten them to it time and size of tide need also to be taken into consideration as both can make a vast difference to catches what then are the key considerations in that regard? Big, big tides never been the best results for me. Don't get me wrong, people do catch fish on big tides. There are 
probably places to go where you will catch the fish, you know, piers and places like that don't seem to be affected by it. But from the shore, you get a big tide, you get too much run, it's hard to present your bait. And it's a bit, to me, you know, I always have a concept of saying, if it's very, very windy, you tend to find that if you're walking down the road where there's buildings, people will be huggled to the buildings as opposed to walking down the middle of the road and getting blown to pieces. And I always think that fish are very, very much the same. So I used to... My own personal thing was not too big a tide, not too small tide, and go fishing after a big blow. Don't go while the blow's on. You won't be able to present your bait. You probably won't be able to fish long enough, hold the bottom. So it is important to be able to pick the right tides and on the right conditions. So after a blow, when the sand's been moved around and the gullies have all been ripped up a bit, the food's more fruitful for the fish, so they're going to be there. And the water's more coloured. You know, our coast... Westerly winds, southwesterly winds, great. Anything with the north in it, yeah, there'd be fish there, but you, you, did, you did struggle. But you need to have the colour in the water, so yeah. You know, if you can go and select the tide and the conditions, then bring it on. It's great, but, you know, having to fish around the conditions on the day, when you get a day off work or the competition's been set, they don't cancel the competition, you've just got to get on with it and make the best of it. But you will find that most people that run competitions do tend to find the little fish, the mid-tides, not the big tides. Small tides are good for low-water fishing. You know, I used to love the low water because they hold the water in the gullies better, but not big tides for low water because, again, they're empty and there's no water. So, And between the two extremes of very rough and very calm seas, what would you say are the ideal shore fishing conditions? Well, again, right in the middle, to be fair, Phil, you know, not flat, because you need some movement. When it's gone flat, it's, it's cleared again, the water starts to clear up. Don't get me wrong, if it's been on a blow for three days, and then it calms off and it goes flat, then it's going to look like tea. The sea's going to be a perfect colour, and there will be fish there. But I like to be preferred to have a bit of a swell on. Not too rough. 25 mile an hour winds is, is easy to fish in, as opposed to anything above it you've got problems then because if you're fishing shallow beaches like we've got then you do struggle to hold the bottom because the water's not too deep. Also during, and for that matter just after rough weather, loose weed in the water can be a very big problem. What in your experience can be done about that in the way you approach the day? Yeah, unfortunately when you've got big tides and things like that, the, the rivers then burst the banks a bit and we tend to find we get a lot of grass and weed and obviously it takes the weed off the bottom of the seabed. It isn't an easy thing to do. It's a, I used to use as light a line as I possibly could get on a multiplier. It does help not picking the weed up and it, it does help not to, to get too much tow. When it is very weedy, the fish are there but they're not going to be among that weed. So you, you've obviously got to wait for it to clear I mean, the other way is not to use a leader knot and probably go to sort of £25 line so that you're not getting it all jammed up. Weed is a problem. Again, people use braid, smaller diameter line, but it still picks weed up. If it's in the water, it's in the water. There's not a lot you're going to do about it until it either moves on, until the tide lifts up and pushes it further on. You've just got to make the best of the ability you've got when you're on the beach. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I've accompanied you on big shore fishing competitions in the past. One in particular springs to mind here. I arrived on the beach just before the start, with you already in position waiting for the kick-off. It was October time on a sandy beach with patches of stones and low-lying gullies, and the tide was just about on the make. What's going through your head in terms of strategy at this time, and do you start each competition with some sort of plan of attack? One of the things I do do is I tend to look around and watch the other anglers. 
on that particular day it was a shallow beach was very very weedy lots of trees been that have been washed up and left on the beach so i didn't want to waste my energy waste my bait waste just chucking in it's just chucking chance i mean we were sat there for probably 20 minutes or more watching people struggle to hold bottom for more than five minutes and they were bringing in the line it was like washing line they had weed everywhere so i just back off and wait and keep assessing the sea and the conditions of the weed and at that particular time we was sat there watching and watching and I mean, it was never going to be, there wasn't going to be any weed that day, but the heaviest of the weed was coming through, and eventually the tide would have pushed it further down the beach because it was pulling left to right. And we assessed it, chucked out, and, hey, we got the heaviest fish. <laughs> I mean, what can I say? I waited for the right time. If I could give any advice to people, you've got to be able to go out with that attitude. Don't try and beat the elements because it doesn't happen. If you're going to enjoy it, and be, you know, if you're that way out, be prepared to walk away and say, mm, it's not going to happen today. But as it being a competition, you've got to sit there and do what you can in the time you've got. I mean, we probably had a three-hour match there, probably only fished possibly two hours of it, because obviously when the tide started pulling back, the weed starts coming back with it. So, yeah, small diameter lines, try not to use a thick leader knot, tie it to something like a tapered leader, which reduces the knot sizes. That's important. Rigs, nothing fancy. Straightforward, two hookers. Big believer in two above the lead, not below. Never ever like snoods below my lead, simply because you can get fish on, you don't even know they're there. But again, it depends how you fish. Sometimes I fish to the clock, sometimes I fish for bites. Again, it, it depends, you know, some days, if there's a lot of fish there, you've got to fish for bites, but if it's by the clock, it could be 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You've got to assess it on the day but definitely don't get too complicated with rigs people have got all these up and downers panel rigs great they all work on the day but the most simplest thing is think about a night line it's fastened to the beach it's got short snoods on and there's always fish on it when you come back to it so we've got a big fancy two foot length up snood what's it going to be doing it's just going to be flopping about all over the place the fish just can't get hold of it and again it's important to get the right diameter line for your hook snoods as well you don't want something too soft you want something that's going to present it and lay it out properly don't be afraid to put bows in the line that's one of the things that people do they fish a tight line short snoods and the fish are feeding on the bottom and the hooks are up in the air and the baits are flopping around the fish just swam past it put an arc in your line and move it let it go out let it come back that's all the things that you need to be doing when you're working on the beach are you saying then that for most of your fishing, your basic terminal rig layout stays pretty much the same? Obviously, snood diameters and hook sizes change with species and situations, but in your case, the basic design remains constant. So when fine-tuning changes of the type I've just mentioned are under consideration, what are the key factors in driving that decision, particularly when you have a mix of fish in front of you, some of which might have small mouths while others have quite large mouths and obviously bigger appetites? Can it ever make sense to try to target anything and everything at the same time? Well, thing on the day, Phil, is that depending on the time of the year, you know what fish are going to be there on the beaches. All rigs will catch fish, but depending on conditions and venues, then as I'm fishing for flatties, and I do like catching flatties, I still get a buzz out of catching a, a couple of flatties on, on a rig or even if you're fishing three hooks. But I always used to fish smaller fine wire hooks because flatties are, tend to 
only have very, very small mouths, so you can't get in there to get them out. There are some great things on the market now, disgorgers like Gemini disgorgers, but a fine wire hook for a flatty, which would straighten out, and you can pull it out the fish without causing it any damage. Hopefully it'll return, you know, you're not going to kill the fish, and you can reshape the hook. And longer hook snoods, you know, maybe go to a foot and a half to two foot. The flapping rig, again, I like my, my bottom hook to be in line with my lead. I always have done. They're great for flatties. Short snoods are fine for whiting and coddling. And dogs, dogs, take it to the shortest. You can you could tie a hook almost to your leader knot and your, your leader line and you'd catch a dogfish. I mean, they're just there's just that many of them. And yet, years ago, I can remember you never caught a dogfish on this coast, but they've just taken over. I don't think that the population of dogfish has grown. I just think that the fact is that the other species have gone because these factory ships have been in and cleared the sea out of them, so the dogfish have now got a chance to feed, whereas at one time you could not get past pouting and whiting because there was just so massive shoals of fish. So they'd always beat the dogfish, but dogfish, yeah, very, very short snoods. Coddling, skate, you know, we do see an odd skate on here, but again, I've had them on a snood that's no longer than 8, 10 inches. So, you know, I'm a big believer in short snoods, don't always clip them either. You know, everybody's into these clip rigs, but I think that, you know, a flapping rig, if you can cast and you're confident with it, a flap rig's great because it pushes the bait down back onto the hook as opposed to blowing it up the hook snood and then the fish are trying to grab half of your hook snood or round your bead that you've trapped it with. So that's just my way of fishing and it was always successful. It always caught me fish. What do you make of adding visual attractors to your rigs? Tested them, Phil. I'm not a great believer in you know a little bit of shall we say sequins for bait stops and things like that. Then the southern lads came out with these great big beads with dots on. I mean, we used to flash them with a camera to make them glow. Tried them, but never had a great deal of success. But then when we found out what they do, they make your bait more buoyant, so they were bouncing about. I'm a big believer in tipping the hook with a bit of silk. If you're going to tip it because you want to make an attractor, put a piece of mackerel on, just a slither of the silver belly part of the mackerel great attractor and is a bait as opposed to you know a lot of the stuff that they put on today i mean obviously if you're fishing in deep water off a boat and you're using some of the new lures and things that they've got today and the shads and things like that then they're fantastic but they don't work off the beach so to me attractors on the hooks were a massive plus factor to me more i was going to tip would be fish silver obviously the belly of a mackerel just going back to the bait blowing up the snoob when you use a clip what can be done to prevent damage or displacement of baits both with and without the use of clips? If you're using a clip, you've got to have a bait stop on. Stop it from blowing up, depending on how, how hard you cast and what sort of bait that you're putting on. Because you're putting a soft bait on, it's just going to blow it up the hooks. I tend to always use to elasticate whatever bait I put on around the hook of the eye. And I always used to tip the hook with a piece of elastic band. People used to come and see me, my tripod and it had bits of elastic hanging off it and they used to think, what's that for? I never used to say anything, but I used to just get the elastic band, put it on the hook and push it round to the gape so then it doesn't mask the hook because when you're using blackworm or lugworm, it just tend to come back round the hook and come off and you, sometimes you look at your hook, you bring it back in and your bait's hanging off the hook. So yeah, a bit of um, elastic tipped off. My favourite was, and I still do it if I go, there's loads of bands knocking about and the postman always uses red ones and they always tip off with a bit of red. It definitely doesn't stop them from taking the bait. 
but it does definitely keep everything nice and neat and tight together. And what are your thoughts on patterns or types of LEDs? Yeah, LEDs have moved on a long way, Phil, haven't they? There's some quality LEDs around in the fact of different bait shields on them and things like that. But again, I tend to modify them depending on where I'm going to fish. Sometimes the standard wires that they put in a breakaway lead are a bit too thin, so they do pull through the sand. So sometimes I take them home and change the wires, stiffen the wires up. Obviously never have a fixed one because I always want to try and recover my gear. So I think the Gemini ones, they've got some, but they don't have that aerodynamic. They do all the bottom, fantastic. To me, they're perfect for a boat lead. The other thing was, is always I used to try and do is use a long-tailed lead, simply because I always find that the, when the lead dips into the sand, the tail point of it will go into the sand, which gives you a little bit more anchorage. And it is important that you've got a lead that holds the bottom, because... To be fair, let's be right, unless the fish is really, really close to you and you strike, then that's when you need to. But majority of times when you've had a bite, the fish is hooked because it's basically pulled against a grip lead. I mean, a codling's a perfect example, or a dogfish or a decent-sized fish, it'll always pull your lead out. And when you start striking and the stretching line at 100 yards plus, that's not going to make that much effect to the fish. You pick it up and you hold into it and they're on. It works like a bolt rig. So, yeah, grip leads are so important, but, you know, there are little things that you can do to modify them to make them work better. I never used to fish much more than a six-ounce. I mean, I've fished next to guys and say, I'm not holding bottom, I've got seven and I've got an eight-ounce lead on. But when you look at the rod, the rod's absolutely poker stiff. No movement in the tip, no slack line. You don't get movement. I mean, you know, people used to come and say to me, how can you tell a bite on that rod? Because it's moving with the tide. I want it to move with the tide because that's the reason why it'll stay on the bottom. There's definitely a difference between a dipping tip on the swell of the sea than there is a fish that's actually giving you a bite. Again, they're sort of things that you need to learn and go out there and practice. But it's important that you buy the right equipment to do the job. Are there also situations where a plain roving lead might come into its own? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean... You know, at the time to you start using a, a lead that moves because most places fish tied up. You know, I, I remember strong believer in people used to fish just till the tide got to the top and then they'd, they'd go home. Competition finished, and there's many a time that the ebbing tide will fish is better than the flooding tide. But it's that in between time, depending on the size of the tide, will depend on how much slack water you've got. It's that's the time where people start getting the butties out and the the flask out and that's where I used to sort hang on it's time to put my flat lead on now because I can do some work so you're actually creating the movement for the fish because that's what they're looking for when the the tide starts running the food stops moving so they stop so they're waiting for it to start but by putting some flat leads on you start covering a bit of a different area and yeah they do work but there is a time for them in contrast to a beach which you can see at low tide there are also marks which don't lend themselves to much of a recce and here I'm thinking about deep water rock marks, piers, breakwaters and the like. How do you go about trying to gather subsurface information regarding these types of marks? Um, a bit of trial and error now, Phil, isn't it? It's one of those you need to go put your lead on, but put a rotten bottom onto it, put a lead on it, go back to looking at how the carp anglers do it. Carp anglers turn up, put a lead on and they start chucking it around and feeling the bottom and trying to find features, which you can do. If it's rough and you've got snags, then you've got to start being prepared to lose a bit of gear back to, you know, a rotten bottom. But, as I say, it's a case of just chucking your gear out and trying it, put your plain lead on it and roll around a little bit to find out what's out there. How important, in your opinion, is bait choice, presentation and quality? 
everything. Well, you've got everything at home if you don't get that right. If you've not got that right, then you're not going to catch. I mean, I've travelled miles and miles to get bait. White rag. I mean, everybody chases white rag. Very, very few and far between on the coast, on various coasts. I mean, I've travelled all the way from Musselburgh. Musselburgh's four hours away from here. I've got there and the tide's not head back. Done that many occasions, sat there, looked and gone. It's, it's the wind direction's changed as I've travelled. And so, yeah, it is very, very important. The time of the year that you need crab. Crab's probably one of the best baits that you can probably find anywhere. It'll catch anything. But again, it's collecting it. I've, I used to get mine sent from Devon. I used to have a, a supplier and sent it every two weeks. And whether I wanted it, I didn't. I had to take it because I, I didn't want to lose the supply that I had. And they used to send them as hard as I could get them so that I could prepare them myself. I don't want crab that's soft. You know, how soft is it? Because it could have been left two or three days dry, so then it's not going to be in the best of condition when it comes out. So I would do it every day. It was almost like get out of bed and before I had my breakfast, I'd go and check my crab. It used to drive me missus insane. But I used to have a tank in the garage with an aerator. In fact, it wasn't a tank. It was a box. It was a like a container with a flip lid on it, the small solid box and it had an aerator in it and it had have four or five inches of water the water would be black as the ace of spade people used to say you've got to change the water no i never changed the water i just used to keep the aerator in it go in put my crab in and check them as soon as i start seeing signs they're coming out and then they're put into the fridge and then the prime baits they were absolutely you've got to get them so so bang on i could peel a crab and throw it on the floor and say i'm not using it and guys would come and say what, what's wrong with that so here take it and i knew when i put it on that it would have caught a fish, but I wanted the prime ones, and I knew exactly once I peeled them, I knew when I put them out, if, if there were fish there, they were definitely going to return a fish. As you've hinted, white rag and crab appear to be the two top must-have shore fishing baits. So what about the rest of what's on offer? How will you rate these in order of value or importance? White rag and crab are top of the list, but crab you fish on your own, white rag never fished on its own, he used to just use it to tip with, but it was important, it did make a difference. My next choice of bait will be lugworm, always need lugworm. There is a place locally where you can go get them in the black and the solid, they're only small, two or three of those on a hook, brilliant, or even one on a hook, but I used to dig those and then keep them in the sand in a tray with just a bit of water on the top, and then a day before I was going to fish, I'd take them out and wrap them in newspaper, and then wrap them again in newspaper and when I got to the venue they were perfect I'd taken a lot of the moisture out of them they shrunk and they'd gone hard but they still had the contents in because they were still alive and put on with a bait needle get out there you cast it out there again not on a clip rig because I didn't want to blow it up it gets on the bait and it's going to leak the blood and the guts so it's giving a scent so it is important black lug yeah but it's like fishing with the skin Mm, not a big believer in it you know it did work don't get me wrong I've had some of the smelliest bait that you couldn't touch and it sticks to your fingers different days you've got to have it you used to take it and then throw it away at the end of the day but you know when things are hard you've just got to go through the motions and try a bit of everything big believer in fish always had mackerel about me always had a slither of mackerel going through the summer go and get a load of mackerel and freeze them down fillet them and get them ready for the, the seasons where they're not available supermarket mackerel they're okay but depends sometimes I just don't think they've been looked after properly so it's, it's one of those sand eel fantastic bait absolutely catches every species of fish 
people don't use it or just use it to tip off with caught all sorts on it dabs flounders everything and shellfish get on the beach and pick up the local shells after a big blow and freeze them down little razors big razor fish not had a great result with them but the smaller little ones and the clams yeah you've, you've got to have them in your bag you, you freeze them down put them into little packets of how many you probably need on the day and take them with you you don't use them you throw them away nothing lost and what about the more species specific baits such as maddies for the flounders yeah maddies don't go there hate them so hard work to dig but again yeah they are they, I mean, you, you're 100% right there Phil I mean you used to fish a place in Ireland in Strand if you didn't have maddies you wouldn't catch fish but in saying that I can remember fishing a competition there I used to fish the Irish pears and I'd won the first day and the second day I used to fish one day on Instrand and one, one day on Ventry. Ventry was a, a dog beach with big flatties and garfish and all sorts. So first day we'd, we'd won it there. Second day my partner was on Ventry and I was on Inch. Goes on to Inch and I'm struggling. I'm two hours into the match and I haven't got a fish. Absolutely pulling my hair out. Knowing that I've, you know, we're the top team after the first day. Anyway, I persevered, persevered. Pulled a couple of flatties out but it's not happening it's just not happening for me guys pulling fish in both sides of me but I was just not getting the fish so I threw my bait in the in the sea just got my maddies and just threw them I'm not putting another one on walked down the beach went to my car came back half a dozen crab put two crab on two bass another crab on two bass by this time I've sort of gone from nothing to I won the section in the end because the schoolies were there they didn't want maddies and I ended up with a bag full of bass and I won the day and I won the competition. So I won the day with pairs and if it hadn't have been for the crab that had been given to me by an Irish angler that was fishing the next peg to me on Ventry who couldn't catch a dogfish and I kept going to him and asking to sign me fishing and his face was dropping further and further. And in fact, the guy's an, an Irish international. I looked in his boat box, Phil, and he had these crab. I turned around to him and I said, Frank, I said, what on earth are you doing? Get them out. And he went, it's a dogfish venue, mate. I said, well, let me tell you something. I'm going to share some information. Don't tell anyone else. So put some crab on. They have got some huge place on here. I have not got a crab in my box because I've come for one species, and that's dogfish, and I've got him what I've come for, and they're in the numbers. I said, but put them crab on, Frank, and you'll catch fish. Within 10 minutes, he'd got two of the biggest place I've ever seen. I've never seen a guy smile as much in my life came over to me and thanked me for telling him about it. On the night I met him in the pub, he came over to me, he said, Mick, let me buy you a pint. I said, Frank, I'm not a big drinker, but I don't want a pint. I said, I want six of them crab. He went, you know what? I said, I want six of them crab. I said, but they've got to be bang on. The second day on the venue, which he was fishing again, was on Inch Strand. He drove down the beach just before the match started. He went, Mick, I've got them crab for you. And today, if he had never given them crab, I would have never won the Irish pears. <laughs> and that guy became a really, really good friend for years and years. Because when he got to Ireland, we used to go to Ireland in the winter and in the summer. Uh, well, should I say, we used to do the Irish winter beach matches, which was the January time. And then he used to do the Daiwa pears, which was September, October. And because the Irish lads couldn't get a lot of their tackle locally they had to send it over and they charged they got charged for the mainland so i used to get a big order before i used to go over 
and they all meet me at Dunleary when I get off the boat, picking up rails and rods and beach buddies and all sorts, but made some fantastic friends over there, but they'd always welcome me with a great big box of crab, <laughs> so it was well worth it. I never made any money out of it. it wasn't me- I didn't do it for money. I just did it because I wanted to, you know, I made some great friends over there. How do you rate cocktail baits, and which, in your opinion, make the best combinations? Cocktail baits are important, Phil. Crab tipped with a bit of mackerel, great. The mackerel just gives it a bit of movement, and then obviously if they're looking for bait, it's going to flicker around, it just an attractor. Lugworm tipped with white rag, one of the best baits I've ever had. So well productive. Blackworm, again, I'm, I do use it. Tipped with mackerel, or tipped with a bit of sand eel, great. But cocktail baits are important. Blackworm tipped with a little shellfish, anything. At the end of the day, it's all about finding that out on the day. You know, you've got to go through the motions. If you're putting lugworm on and you're catching fish, then why tip it? Everybody gets confident and comfortable with baits and, you know, knows what catch for him. So you may start off with that, but some people there continue, continue, continue chucking the same bait out and they're not there and they wonder why other people are catching fish because you've just got to experiment. It's what they want on the day. Again, pre-look at the venue, what's natural to the beach? Worms, shellfish, yeah. And fish them baits, because that's what the fish are coming for. Moving away from the trace and the baits now, what should we know about shock leaders? And I'm thinking here about the number of turns on the reel, types of knots and braking strains. Shock leaders basically always use Iowa taper leaders. Don't like big heavy shock leaders. Don't like the knot burning my thumb. <laughs> but always like to run... 12 pound diameter line to a 16 pound knot which I always found was great for lower diameter again because of the toe and also didn't pick as much weed up so you haven't got that knot jamming through your top eye on your rod always whenever I got a rod I always changed the top eye never kept the original eye on it I always used to put can't remember the name of them now but I used to have a massive selection of them and I always changed them because I needed that leader knot to come through to me reel so it was important Tried all sorts of different leaders, but yeah, so important leader knots. You can't fish without them, or you're going to lose leads, or you're going to be dangerous another angler because you'll end up chucking a lead and it'll come off and hit somebody. So it is important. And if I remember rightly, I think it used to work something like ten pounds breaking strain to every ounce of lead that you're going to chuck. So I'd always have a maximum of sixty pound at the end. Turns on the reel wasn't something that really. I used to get too involved with because obviously tapered leaders are measured so you know it was a matter of what was on if I was going to take anything off I always used to take it off at the larger diameter and not the smaller one but always have I remember people used to say five six turns on the reel that's to say something I didn't really get too involved in I used to use tapered leaders I always found it was better for me not too fancy with knots something easy something simple tried the bimini twists and all the rest of them great for places where there's no weed but as soon as you get weed and you jam up on your top eye your knot's over you've got big loops in your line all over the place so keep it as simple as you can one thing i did pick up on while watching you fish is that long distance doesn't necessarily always equate to more or even better fish obviously there are days when it can win matches but equally there will also be days when shorter lobbing seems to be the answer so how do you make that call again phil it's a bit like Back to the assessing the beach, what's on there, you know, what you're looking for, what species of fish you're looking for. Yeah, you're 100% right. 
I've seen lots and lots of people have great big downfalls because of the fact that they can cast and they don't want to put a bait short. Casting is very important. I always used to find that I spent hours and hours on the beach with my father measuring out how far I was casting. It was important because you can fish in a different sea to the next person and if you fish next to a guy in a, any competition, peg competitions for instance, and he's only chucking 70, 80 yards and you're chucking 120 plus, then you can fish left and right without causing him any problems and you're fishing in a different sea to him but it's again it's reading the venue where are the fish are they short are they long you know that's something you've got to you've got to read in yourself but i've seen people where i've gone on the beach and i play games with them because i put my rod out i cast my lead out wet my line and i'm casting it as far as i can then i'll put my short rod out and i'm looking and thinking the fish are going to be down at the bottom of the wall or down the back of the third breaker the bigger fish are not going to come till the tide pushes up. I remember going down one day and um, there was a guy that was next to me. He was a bit of a caster. Nice guy. Turned up, set off. I went to Chuck and he went, you go first, Mick. I went, no, go on, Alan. You're all right, mate. You, yeah, you get it out there. And he leathered it out. And fair shout to him. He put it out a fair distance. I put my rod down and picked my little flatty rod up and chucked it over the wall about 30 yards. And his face, it was like a, what the hell's he doing? And I just looked. I never said anything. Two minutes later, my rod's tapping away like mad, and I'm thinking, good lad, good lad. Then it came, ten minutes in, I've got two flatties on. He comes in, like, with a fear on his face, like, thinking, he's two up already, he's two up. As he came in, I pulled my two flatties in. He went to throw his flatty rod out, and he came in with no fish. I chucked out long. His head was mashed, because the fish were only there for the first initial run of the tide, and then the fish hit the wall and then dispersed going different directions so I'd done my homework because I knew what I was looking for so going back to long and short casting it's about reading the beach assessing what fish are going to be there or would normally be there and read it like that so casting is important but it's not always necessary to cast that distance it's a bit like freshwater fishing I go pole fishing fish at 16 metres fish at 12 metres by the time I started, I might find fish at 12 metres, but I'm bringing them closer and closer because I shorten the feed so they come closer and I can fish from off the top two below my feet and catch the same amount of fish. So, yeah, casting and fishing at distance is important, but it's also there are fish closer and there are times when to do it and when not to do it. What sort of distance can be achieved with a fully baited rig and what do you have to do to ensure that the baits get out there in the same condition as when they went onto the hooks? Again, flapping rig... 160, 170 yards with two little lugworm on is not unknown. I used to go on the beach and practice with a rig on and I used to use the casing of a, a wire cable and fix it so it wouldn't move and I used to go on the beach and chuck 180 yards on a regular time. Obviously wind is going to play a big part of it and air pressure takes a big part of it because a lot of people don't see it that way but it does make a difference to how things fly. So again, I'm not a big believer in baited hooks clipped down so again two small lugworm small bait stop on bait stop at the top and a lucky band at the bottom and just chuck it that's it if i was to put my clip rig on then the air pressure forcing the bait would push the bait back up the hook snood because of the amount of power and the amount of speed that it's traveling so i want it to reverse that's why a flopping rig is important it is to me anyway Obviously, casting is important to you, and the main distance approach for most people is the pendulum cast. Presumably, you are the same. 
but have you ever tried any of the other casting styles? And if so, what's your take on these? I'm a pendulum caster, but I'm not a textbook pendulum caster. I've got my own style. If you was going to teach someone, they wouldn't really copy the way I cast, but it works for me. Again, I've tried off-the-ground casting. I've even a fixed spool man, to be fair. I mean, I remember watching fishing against the Belgians using 17-foot fixed spool rods with a fixed spool reel on with small diameter line, and they put the rod on top of the head like it's in a, in a gutter, and they run down the beach and hit it. And the amount of distance they get for the effort is fantastic. So, again, it's back to picking, choosing the right rod and the right equipment to do the job. Lots and lots of people actually buy things that just do not suit them. So, again, you need to get hold of somebody that you know or a friend or get on the beach and start speaking to people and maybe copy somebody else's technique because it is important. You know, you can go out there and spend two or three hundred pounds on a rod and it doesn't work for you. So that is so important that you can compress that rod and depending on the different type of style of fishing reel that you want to use. But it seems to me that more continental style fishing equipment is being used here in the UK than it ever has been before. I mean, obviously there's rock beaches and places like that, rock edges, that you wouldn't be able to use that equipment. So you've got to buy the equipment for the place that you want to fish, really. Um, obviously, if, if you're going to travel, then you've got to buy more than one because it's not going to work everywhere you go. On the subject of fixed spool reels, would you routinely carry on with you in addition to the normal multiplier? Distance, I've always used a multiplier. Always use a multiplier, not a fixed spool. Don't like the loops in the line and things that you get from the fixed spools, but multiplier man, as a rule, for long distance and for short distance, I just use a fixed spool. And what about favoured seating positions on the boat? If it's a fixed spool, it's in the middle, where you would normally have it. But a multiplier is always on the bottom. tend to find that because I'm quite a vicious caster, but I also find that because I'm right-handed, the right hand's the one that's going to put is, is going to put the final punch in it. And I find that for that to control the rod, the reel and the punch, it doesn't work for me. So I like the reel down at the bottom. I've got more control and I'm using more of the rod as opposed to the fact that the reel's halfway up. So I get more out of my rod when it's when, it, when I find it when it's down the bottom. And I've proved to the fact that I can cast further down at the bottom than I can at the top. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to throw in now on brand choices? Well, Conaflex used to be the people that used to sponsor me and did quite a lot of development work with, with Conaflex because when I'd been out abroad looking at different ways of people fishing and brought some of the ideas back and the guys made the rods. So Conaflex has got to be a sort of big favourite for me because, you know, that's what I used when I was a successful then. Um, so, yeah, I had a great probably a, a great opportunity there because I wasn't having to buy the rods so I was getting loads and loads of different rods given to me which I gave away you know after I'd finished with them so Conaflex did do very very well obviously out of me doing what I was doing and uh, I got the chance to get some great rods put together that absolutely suited me as opposed to buying something off the shelf but there's lots and lots of rods out there I mean greys at the moment you can't not greys I mean greys have got a fantastic range of rods to suit up every person Ziplex you know I've always been a lot of favourites more down south to be fair again Century tend to be a bit more rocky type heaviest type of gear but if I was to go out and buy one today and it wasn't going to be a Conaflex it would probably be a Graze 
I think. Dyer were... They were all in the competition with each other, but I think Grades are the, are the ones because they give us such a good guarantee with them. If something breaks, other than because you've trapped it in the car door when you shut it or the hatchback, then you know they'll guarantee it and they'll exchange it. And what about the reels? I'm a Dyer man, to be fair. I like SL20s. Not everybody gets on with them. I can cast really well with them. They suit me because they stand high off the ground and I've got a thumb big enough to hold them. Whereas some people, you know, like 7HTs, just not work enough for me, Phil, to be fair. You know, like, they're all right. They can handle any sort of fish, but when you start getting loaded up with a bit of weed, then, you know, you're finding that they're not... And they, they need too much maintenance. Maintenance is important with any part of your fishing gear, but with an SL20, I can bring it on, shove it under the tap, wash the salt off it, use it three or four times before I have to start taking it apart because it hasn't got a steel spool. It's like a, I don't know what you call ceramic type thing, so it... You don't get the build-up of salt on the spools and things like that, and they don't start pitting, so I find them quite the most good all-round reel for me. Earlier, you touched on bite detection and comments made by other people regarding how you can distinguish reel bites from other causes of tip activity. Give us your take on bite detection and how, depending on the type of bite it is, you choose to deal with it, such as either striking or running backwards up the beach. The only time I'd probably run backwards up the beach would probably if I've got a big slack liner that I've missed basically the fish has hooked itself, pulled the lead out and I'm trying to make connection to tighten it up as quick as I can as opposed to reeling into it. But as far as bite detection is concerned, again, spending the amount of time on the beach catching different species of fish, you can actually tell the difference. Not guaranteed what it's going to be, but different fish give different bite detection. Sometimes you just get a little rattle, sometimes you get a lunge, sometimes you get a slack liner. Skate off the beach looks like something that's basically you've picked up a load of weed and all it's doing is dragging your tip over until your butt comes up and everything falls on the floor if you've not picked it up by then. Coddling tend to give you a good old thump and then a slack line if it's hooked and moved on. So, again, it's learning the rod and registering bites. I mean, little rattles you tend to find will be small fish. Flatties give you a bite and then they sulk. They don't they sit on and they just lie in the sand until you move them. But the good way of fishing with flatties is if you pick your rod up and pull the lead out and pull it sideways and just give it a little bit of slack line, you'll tend to find it will pull back on you. Again, it's spending the time on the beach catching the different species to learn the different bite detections that you get from these fish. I mean, obviously, there's the other one. There's a fish lying on, you didn't even see it. So how does fish activity differ visually from wave action or weed gathering on the line? Weed on the line tends to... It tends to bounce, really, as opposed to a bite as a, again, tide run or swells, they tend to be sort of downward motions of the tip, but they equally do the same. It doesn't change, whereas with a, a fish, you tend to get a, a proper little vibration on the tip. And they're my experiences of bites. Now, I know from chatting to you earlier that you still do a bit of shore fishing, even on occasions entering shore matches, just to keep your hand in. But I also know that you do far more coarse fishing than you ever did before. Why is that? I always did course fishing, Phil. I had to do it because it was the only way I could get, going back to where we said both earlier, that I could get to catching lots and lots of fish and speeding it up and bait presentation. Fishing in really, really hard conditions, as in clear water, winter, ice, and actually getting feeding patterns right. So, you know, that was a big challenge for me. The reason I went back to it was because I felt like I'd exhausted everything I could with the sea angling and totally... Like I saw the door had been shut in my face, to be fair, I felt 
like I'd, I had this dream, but when I got there, the dream wasn't what I thought it would be. And I felt like I lost a lot of friends through it. And I, I felt totally demoralised, to be fair, because I thought that it would have been better than it was. So, obviously, the world team and everything else just sort of fell apart, to be fair. And I just I carry on fishing, but I've, I've suddenly wanted to get more pleasure out of it. So I get a lot more pleasure out of teaching, helping people, teaching people, and sharing a lot of the things that I've learnt over the years from travelling around the country. You know, I still get it today where guys will ring me and say, Mick, I'm going down south to so-and-so. You remember? Can you remember? And I'll say, well, yeah, this is what we did. And I've dipped in and out of the beach fishing and nothing's changed, Phil. All right, um, baits are still the same. Same fish are still on the beach. So they're, they're always going to be there. So what worked all those years ago still works today. So I see people getting too technical with rigs and various other things and you know it's back to basic it's as simple as you want it to be or it can be as complicated as you want the fish stocks have gone so that's another reason why i didn't want to f- i carried on i mean we have cycles of fish and at this moment in time we're having a pretty good year on our coast which you know makes a change to be fair but i didn't i'm not totally in in for catch and release as in the measure and return system that they've got i do believe that you've got to let fish stocks replenish and we have lost a lot of fish but you're going out there casting a lead to catch a fish that won't weigh the same as the lead and it's time to it was time for me to hang my boots up to be fair so that's why i started going back course fishing because the fish are there people start saying to me oh it's easy because they're in there they are they're right but the difference is that if you need a hundred pound bag of fish you've still got to get them fish out so it's all right fishing in places which they you know, it's solid with fish, but you've got to get them out. Yeah, you've, you've got to keep them fish interested. You've got to make sure you feed them right. Don't overfeed them. So, yeah, I'm still there. I'm still hooked. Still catching fish. I'm still having good days and bad days, and that's what makes us keep going. So, And I believe you also enjoy doing a bit of coaching out on the bank as well. Fantastic. You go out there and you talk to people on the bank. I mean, I'm, a typical story was an old guy that was at a fishery, and he was in the corner and um, I was watching him fishing and he was having a struggle and he fell over actually and I got up and I walked over and I said you're right there mate and he went yeah yeah he said I'm I'm not so good on my legs but he said I'm at the caravan park and I'm just having a good day but he says I'm just come out of the way for the missus he said I don't catch much he said he said I seem to struggle I said can I help you with anything he went I said and, and don't be offended by it he went no not at all so I said I went back to my gear and I bought some different lines and set him up and he was sat there and I left him. I said, you're right now, fellow, and I told him where to fish and he was happy. He was a great old guy, actually, bit of a character. Went back to my box, sat down, and I looked over and next minute I seen him lunging, his rod lunge over and he's got a great big carp on. And he's shouting, hey, up, lad, hey, up, lad, what? <laughs> I said, calm down, don't rush it. And I could see his face, he was just like... Anyway, eventually he got it under control and he, he was struggling with it on the bank, so I went back over again. He said, I'm going to have a bloody heart attack. He said, what have you done to me? What have you done to me? He said, I've never caught anything as big in my bloody life. He said, it's a pity I can't take it home and eat it from his ear, so I wouldn't advise that. But I say, the old guy got up, he went home. He was quite amazed and I've seen him four or five times and he never, ever forget the day. He always comes over and he's just a nice old fellow and he's having, he's catching fish and he said, nobody ever in five years of me going there has ever come over and told me anything. And I said, well, it's not that easy sometimes because people can be offended. They look at you and think, well, who are you to tell me how to catch fish? And I like to share them experiences. You know, I've done it with kids. I've seen 
men take the children, you know, the young lads and who don't really have any idea and they're trying to teach the kids and the kids are getting frustrated and if they don't catch fish they don't want to come back so, you know, it all helps the sport, doesn't it? It's nice to get some fresh blood in the game but again, back to sea angling you know, I look around, I go and see a competition and the same faces are there and they're getting older and older and, you know, they die off and nobody replaces them because it's not... The sea fishing isn't, on this coast, unfortunately, is not as good as it is down south, and we're going back to the south, but, yeah, it's great to just pass information on and share it, and many happy days with it, I hope. And I'm certain that you've been able to pass on more than a few scraps of information here. My thanks, then, to Mick McCallum for his candour regarding the international match fishing scene and for sharing the wealth of hands-on knowledge he's picked up down on the shore over the years. Mm -hmm.